this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses the dark side of the moon. Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Paul Zotter, Tom Corcoran, and Ken Gregory, as we cover the seminal album, Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon. Gentlemen, welcome to the Palaver. When you start a podcast about progressive music, there are just certain albums that are on your wish list from the beginning. Things that just kind of pop into your head. The Dark Side of the Moon is one of those. We've finally gotten here in the in the Pink Floyd catalog. With all due respect, Thomas, we have now officially reached the main sequence of Pink Floyd. Right. Oh, all right. We'll, we'll <laughs> chat. And, and- we'll chat. Listen, not not for nothing. This this discussion is so important that Tom literally forced his children to eat beans and toast for dinner so that he could join us tonight. So it actually is black bean soup. Wow. <laughs> black bean soup. Did you make that from scratch, Tom, or or do you uh, you use it like a can? No, it's uh, it's actually in a box. Trader, oh, okay. Trader Joe's black bean soup. Tom, I'm glad you were able to arrange the the family menu to allow you to join us tonight. It's always a pleasure when you get to talk to us. But you know, I think for this, you know, this is, <laughs> you know, I, I just I always crap all over my own my own stuff, right? Because I'll I'll be honest, <laughs> leading up to this, and I made this comment to Ken off air a week or so ago. You know, I was probably more excited about Wish You Were Here than The Dark Side of the Moon. But in the lead up to this episode, this recording here tonight, I've gotten fully on board. There's a lot to discuss here. And there is no shortage of lore and hyperbolic speaking about this this record. I'm sure that we will add our own hyperbolic thoughts to this album. Yes. <laughs> All right, moving right along, going to the hyperbolic timeline of progressive rock. Oh boy, guys! Last time when we did that thing, what was it? Umagoma? Obscured, Obscured by clouds. By clouds. Yeah. A- anybody remember what year that was? That would be 1972. A lot of stuff came out in 1972. 1972 uh, is crazy, by the way. Right. We talked last time, Thick as a Brick, Gentle Giant, Caravan, Obscured by Clouds, Jethro Tull, Living in the Past, uh, Frank Zappa, Waka Jawaka, Emerson, Lake and Palmer Trilogy. That's a really great one. Tangerine Dream. Yes, <gasps> just close to the edge. Which, I'm sorry, Ken, which Tangerine Dream? Zeit. Oh, okay. Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Genesis does something about a raccoon, no, a squirrel, no, a fox, foxtrot. <laughs> Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, pictures and exhibition. Isn't that amazing? They did Trilogy in July, and they did pictures and exhibition in November. That's amazing. Gentle Giant with their second album, 
of the year, Hawk, uh, Octopus, Electric Light Orchestra, The Mothers, that's the Grand Wazoo, uh, and we're still counting the Beach Boys in this because they're so influential. Rick Wakeman in 73 does The Six Wives of Henry VIII. We've nice. got Camel, we've got another ELO, and then finally in March 73, Dark Side of the Moon. So it's it's just amazing. It's not 69, but it's that it's like the next best thing to 69. Ken, may may, may I interject here into the, the timeline and maybe expand out the scope a little bit, if I may? If I'm allowed to bring up the mamas and the papas, you're allowed to bring up whatever it is you got there. We've sort of set the the precedent here, at least as far as Pink Floyd goes, that when it, it shows up in this semi-crappy book, uh, the revised and updated edition of 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die, uh, I had planned on, <laughs> on reading the excerpt for Dark Side of the Moon. But while I was doing that, I started while I was looking for the page that it was on. I, I just started flipping through the. It, it's in chronological order, so I started flipping through the albums that came out in 1972 and 1973. Obviously, this goes far and, and beyond the the prog rock timeline that we normally consider, but it does seem to be compelling in certain regards. Last episode, Ken, you had mentioned Deep Purple's um, Machine Head. We had Black Sabbath Volume 4, Neil Young's Harvest. I bring up Neil Young because Roger Waters mentions Neil Young in an interview on this record. Um, yes, Close to the Edge is mentioned. Lou Reed's Transformer, Todd Rundgren, Something Anything. Mm. Stevie Wonder releases Talking Books. Stephen Stills has oh, Manassas. Wow. Um, the Eagles have their self-titled debut uh, oh, Paul Simon has Paul Simon. Also in 1972, and this is interesting, Roxy Music releases Roxy Music. Now, why this specifically caught my eye as I was flipping through is because, and I, I'm not familiar terribly with Roxy Music, um, other than the obvious things. Um, obviously, Brian Ferry uh, and Graham Simpson, but they formed Roxy Music with Phil Manzanera who happens to play guitar on David Gilmour's Live in Gdansk concert that I was listening to and watching this week. So I thought that was a very interesting little crossover. Hmm. Um, we have David Bowie, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, um, The Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. As we move into 1973, we have Leonard Skinner, uh, pronounced Leonard Skinner. We have David Bowie's Aladdin Sane, King Crimson, Lark's Tongue in Aspen, oh. Bob Marley and the Whalers, Catch a Fire, um, Lou Reed does Berlin, Genesis does Selling England by the Pound, um, Roxy Music has another one, Herbie Hancock has Headhunters, Mike Oldfield releases Tubular Bells, mm -hmm. Todd Rundgren mm -hmm. has A Wizard, A True Star, Elton John has Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, um, before we get to Dark Side, and from there it goes on to Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions and ZZ Top Trey Ombres. Paul McCartney and Wings releases Band on the Run, and uh, let's see, I think that just about does it. Iggy and the Stooges releases Raw Power, which, you know, and uh, yeah, so that's pretty much it. A lot of stuff going on there in well, this I, time I frame. 
I just want to guide you on the path. So, so, so I've been doing the timeline of progressive rock now for at least a year, maybe a mm-hmm. year and a half. And, and, and I, and I think you're doing a damn good job there, Joe, but just wanted to throw this out there. According to my sources, Lark's tongue and aspic came out 13 days after dark side. Well, yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. Okay. So, 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 so I, so. I didn't, I didn't lay out the book. Oh, yeah. So sometimes what's lost on me, Ken, is that your timeline of progressive rock is always leading up to the album. Yeah, right? I want I want to know wanna, what, the, what the band, the engineers and the label were listening to while they were dreaming. up. Yeah. This. I, right, yeah. I always I always imagine myself wallowing around in 1973 with my choice of all of what's been released to hear and, and think about all the glory that. <laughs> that that is out here. I, I think what's fascinating about all of those titles that Joe just rattled off is that just the ridiculous number of albums in 72 and 73 that that made the difficult list of 1001 all-time albums to listen to. I mean, it was a good couple of years. Just in <laughs> case you were wondering, the 1972 was Year of the Rat and the... 1973 was year of the ox. Oh, that has anything okay. to do with anything. Not the rat proco, not the proco rat. Not the proco rat, but there is the, of course, the connection to music there. And then, of course, the year of the ox, which which rhymes with rocks. So, you know. <laughs> it, you know. If, we were, if we were actually wallowing around, as you say, we were wallowing around with little Fisher-Price people, just to be clear. Yeah. It's we amazing. Were. You think about all this great stuff that was coming out when we were such young kids, yeah. and that had that, and we, you know, some of us had, a couple, well, a couple of us had uh, older siblings, but that somehow, I mean, it had to shape us as, as you know, five years later. It's remarkable when you think about, and 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 maybe I'm just old, but you know, look at all the shit that comes out now. It's crazy. But I will say this, Ken. Thank you to you, and thanks for sort of opening my eyes to all of the other wonderful prog rock out there. You know, it, it's been a very fun year or so of just learning about new bands and new projects and uh, and new artists. So, well, Paul, actually, to add to something that you just started on. I think this album is probably one of the most monumental things that we'll talk about in a sense because it sold like 45 million copies. I mean, a lot of the stuff we listen to, it's it's not the most commercial thing in the world, right? I mean, it's it's prog has not always been popular, has not always been trendy, has not always sold a lot of albums and this album sort of gives me hope for humanity in a way, because if you look at this album, it does have some commercial aspects, but it, it still is Prague. And it, I mean, I think this is like at least in the top five, you know, the biggest selling albums of all time. I mean, 45 million copies is insane. So it's sort of going back to what you're saying. Oh, is it fourth? It's oh, number four. Wow. Okay. I was, I was close. But I believe it's it holds the record for being on Billboard's uh, top 100 for the most consecutive weeks. There's a column for total certified copies, and then there's a, a column for claimed sales. So ah. Pink Floyd, The Dark Side of the Moon comes in number four on the claimed sales at 45 million. 
total certified copies is 24.4. Fascinating. It's a crap ton of albums. It's a lot of albums and people were really enjoying something of quality rather than something that was popular and sort of a sign of the times just because it was the thing to do or a cool hairstyle or just a, a, a catchy hook or whatever the things that attract people to a lot of rock music i don't know this to me it sold this many albums and people like something of substance so <laughs> i can actually look at this and just sort of take a breath and be like okay at least at some point people weren't completely nuts i mean they may have been stoned you know but they weren't completely nuts they were in, they were appreciating something uh really good and well keep in mind when people were stoned they were buying tormato yeah, so well okay okay well so that's my point <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know what's amazing about you know part of what you're saying to me, Tom, is that yeah, I don't know if there's been a more endearing album like in its entirety than this one. As I was researching, you know, it, it occurred to me that Pink Floyd was on the brink; they were already, you know, tired of touring. They they were becoming a a huge act, and and then this hits. How many? How many bands hit when they're sort of like already at the top of their at, at, of their peak, right? And this just kind of blows the top right over it. And we've talked so many times at how it takes collectively like 20 years for people to come around to an album or 20 years people are like, oh my gosh, this is such a greater album than they when we first realized. And it's almost like people got it from day one and and then 20 years later got it all over again and I, this the whole record is so endearing and, and so en enduring over time it just gets to me better and better and better every year it's wacky gosh guys i feel like i'm 16 again at surface tension rehearsal and we're trying to have a conversation and ken starts wanking around <laughs> this is great <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. I had to play that because I don't want uh, us to belabor the point of album sales without going straight to the money maker. And that, in fact, right. was money. And yeah. the band, the band was very much tired of that song, and they were very much tired of folks in the audience screaming "money" until they played it. So, as we've already mentioned, "Dark Side of the Moon" was released on first March of nineteen seventy-three. Um, it was produced by Pink Floyd and it was released on the label Harvest. Had the familiar group of David Gilmore, Nick Mason, Richard Wright, and Roger Waters, with the additional musicians of Dick Perry, who played saxophone on Us and Them and Money. Claire Torrey, as we mentioned in the pre-show, did vocals on The Great Gig in the Sky. And um, Doris Troy, Leslie Duncan... Lisa Strike and Barry St. John on backing vocals. So um, that's our our lineup for this. The soundtrack is, or the the track listing is "Speak to Me," "Breathe," uh, apparently listed as "Breathe in the Air" on the original LP label, "On the Run," "Time," containing the "Breathe" reprise, "The Great Gig in the Sky," "Money," "Us and Them." Any Color You Like, Brain Damage, and Eclipse. The Dark Side of the Moon is the eighth studio album by English 
rock band Pink Floyd released on 1st March 1973 by Harvest Records. Primarily developed during live performances, the band premiered an early version of the record several months before recording began. New material was recorded in two sessions in 1972 and 1973 at Abbey Road Studios in London. The record builds on ideas explored in Pink Floyd's earlier recordings and performances while omitting the extended instrumentals that characterize their earlier work. A concept album, its themes explore conflict, greed, time, death, and mental illness, the latter partly inspired by the deteriorating health of founding member Sid Barrett, who departed the group in 1968. The group used recording techniques such as multi-track recording, tape loops, and analog synthesizers. Snippets from interviews with the band's road crew as well as philosophical quotations were also used. Engineer Alan Parsons was responsible for many sonic aspects of the and the recruitment of singer Claire Torrey, who appears on The Great Gig in the Sky. The sleeve, which depicts a prism spectrum, was designed by Storm Thurgeson following keyboard Richard keyboardist Richard Wright's request for a, quote, simple and bold, end quote, design, representing the band's lighting and the record's themes. The album was promoted by two singles, Money and Us and Them. The Dark Side of the Moon received critical acclaim upon release and has since been hailed by critics as one of the greatest albums of all time. The record reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Top LPs and Tape Chart, now known as the Billboard 200, and has charted for over 900 weeks in total. With estimated sales of over 45 million copies, it is Pink Floyd's bestseller and one of the best-selling albums worldwide. The record helped to propel Pink Floyd to international fame, bringing wealth and recognition to all four of its members. It has been remastered and re-released on several occasions, most recently for digital distribution. Now for the book hyperbole. Acid blues, guitar solos, lyrics that tackle woe and warmongering, a spacey title issued in 1973 by a group who were individually anonymous yet vastly influential. This is Cosmic Slop by Funkadelic. Nothing to do with Dark Side of the Moon, except that both soundtracked a cynical era when Watergate and the end of the Vietnam War killed off whatever was left of the 60s spirit after Altamont. The Floyd's zeitgeisty opus, however, had mundane beginnings. Anxious to shed their psychedelic shackles, the band gathered in drummer Nick Mason's kitchen to compile a short list of things that bothered them. Those pressures, time, money, madness, death, were wedded to vaguely funky rockers, much like those on Obscured by Clouds, then toured for a year as Eclipse, a piece for assorted lunatics. Sprinkled with studio fairy dust, gospel vocals, explosive solos, sound effects, Eclipse became Dark Side of the Moon. A stateside million-seller on the strength of the band's live reputation, the band went interstellar when parent company Capital turned money into a rare Floyd hit. These days, it is available in anniversary editions and has been remade by Reggae Mischief Makers, 2003's Dub Side of the Moon, and Fish. Opened, out the gatefold cover displays a prism endlessly refracting a beam of light, evoking both the Floyd's legendary light show and the vaulting ambition in the lyrics. It remains one of rock's most iconic images. 
With its burden of heritage, you would expect it to be a bore. In fact, it is a tuneful, rousing set of brilliant songs. For Floyd virgins, this is the place to start. And there is a quote from the 2003 documentary, which we will speak of a lot, I'm sure, from one Roger Waters, quote, we still had a common goal, which was to become rich and famous. So ends the reading. Wow. So, Joe, I don't know how much you paid for that book, but I'm going to suggest you overpaid. Um, but I'm so, <laughs> I'm so glad you did. So glad you did. I agree with the last statement there for the Pink Floyd virgins. This is the place to uh, to begin. You know, you really can't you really can't lose starting here. And, you know, I have this cynical, grumpy old man disposition to where I'm naturally sort of inclined against anything that everyone likes so much just because I'm that way. But this is undeniable, I think. Mm. It really is phenomenal. And even given, I've already made jokes about the the hyperbole around this. I mean, reading that was one thing. Listening to Roger Waters talk about it is another. Listening to the one critic in the classic albums documentary is is yet another. Um, you know, there's just, uh, you know, I, I wanted to poo-poo, not poo-poo, but I wanted to maybe downplay this a little bit and, and again, upplay, wish you were here. But gosh, this is just a fantastic record. We've made comments to this effect before, but this really, this starts the, the string of perfect sounding Pink Floyd records. They just did everything right. You know, we the last couple albums we did, you know, there were some some inconsistencies in metal. There were times in metal when it was, when it was, you know, approaching this certainly, but not quite there. Obscured by clouds uh, had a, a, a slightly different reason for existing, and, and it was probably done specifically in a way that uh, echoed back to more. But this album is just. It, it sounds spectacular and hearing Alan Parsons talk about it and isolate out certain things. Uh, it's just, it's a joy to see how they constructed this and the fact that they, they recorded it so damn well. Yeah. You know, listen, their last album, they literally had a song where they were just playing blues next to a yelping dog. As good as you want to say metal is as, as good as you want to say, Amagama is an Adam Hart mother, nothing indicated this was going to come out of them. I mean, am I wrong? Am I am I completely off base by saying that? I mean, this is well, I mean, like toss, another another whole level. Toss some love to echoes. I mean, that's that's what the, the narrative is, right? Yeah, I mean, it, when you when you talk about metal, right? You've got um one of these days and metal. The book ends on that album they most clearly indicate what we were going to get. But I think, Paul, to your point, every Pink Floyd album that we have covered in this sequence so far has had some debatable point to it. It may not be the same for everybody, but there's always something that makes you go, ah, I'm not quite sure why they did that, or that doesn't quite fit. This album is pretty much consistently wonderful 
I mean, I can't yeah. think of a track that anyone would say, well, you know, they probably could have made the album without this. I, I think for me, just when I think about all of the bands that we've we've covered, I struggle to compare a one step shift from one album to the other. Like you're right, the, the two bookends of metal maybe telegraph this, but goodness gracious, it's all it is almost like going from time and a word to the Yes album. Right. I mean, it. It just, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so much of a forward leaping stride for them. And um, I don't mean any disrespect to any of the other stuff. I just think it's like, wow. I actually agree with what you're saying. I think this album definitely has a shift as we see in the next couple, you know, it's definitely the Floyd sound. But talking about Echoes, Ken or Adam Hart Mother, I can really hear their use of theme. And then looking at Dark Side, I mean, they, there's reoccurring themes. And one of the things that really comes out in Dark Side is that if you look at some of their, their past works and even the stuff they've done for film, I mean, they all have a composer's ear in the, in the sense that they know how to evoke emotion. I mean, I don't know if it's always cognizant or that it just, just happens, but um, they, they really know how to evoke emotion and they, they do it by having the listeners participate in what's going on. And I think that's really one of the also things that may be popular about the whole, you know, people listening to Floyd when they're under the influence or, you know, high or whatever, because it just, it gives them that space to be where they want to, not necessarily where the band wants to, but where the listener wants to. There's just that magical Floyd space that happens. And Dark Side gives you everything without being so segmented of course you know I'm a gum had was really like four albums mixed together with four people different ideas and Adam Hart Mother had the, the song first like the 25 minute song and then the, the other song separate so I mean everything was kind of segmented it's been interesting to really see how these larger than life albums Dark Side Wish You Were Here The Wall came together and I really feel that there's a connection with some of the earlier albums it's just interesting to sort of you know back in the day when we're teenagers we're listening to our favorite Floyd album in, in different settings we don't really have that perspective so this has been interesting to sort of have that perspective and to see oh, okay this is why we're hearing this I can see they did this back in this album and that to me is is very clear but no Paul you're right I mean there definitely is a jump and um, I mean this would be that that album where it jumped but it is that being said i mean you can go back to a lot and say oh okay this is connecting the dots to get to dark side i love that you talk about the space there certainly is a calm that becomes pink floyd they, they do truly become a stadium act i suppose they're already a stadium act at this point but they they, they grow larger in this period Thanks to the the record sales, you know, having seen Floyd all of once, it's like a sonic Godzilla. It doesn't move very quickly. It moves very slowly, you know, and you're in awe of this thing. And occasionally a pig pops out and a plane pops out. For the most part, everything has this peace and breath to it. And they're they're clearly entering that phase here, so I I relate heavily 
when you talk about that space. It's a foundation that they're building that will sustain for albums to come. Mm. So it's funny that you guys are, are using the term space so much. I mean, have you, you um, I'm guessing you guys have seen the, the documentary that, that I've been watching because they spend a lot of time talking about the, the musical space that is afforded in there and sort of the, you know, the, the restraint that they showed in, in order to leave that and how that sort of manifests itself in music that is both brilliant and yet interpretable, I think. So... Yeah, fascinating. One of the things that I wanted to bring up in the pre-show and I neglected to, um, just because this this is like palaver geekdom, the David Gilmore live in Gdansk that I had mentioned prior, on that they actually play a stellar version of Echoes and mm -hmm. Gilmore whips out a telly, which just got me all kinds of warm and fuzzy. So, wow. I don't... I don't know that I've actually seen Gilmore on a telly. Or cool. shit. Was it on Echoes? It was either Echoes or Astronomy Domine. Doesn't really matter. He played a, a telly on one of them, and it was awesome. I loved it. <laughs> there were a couple of quotes from the documentary that I watched that leapt out at me. Now, I was annoyed because I'm me when they started the documentary, and of course they have to invoke Sid Barrett. Now, in the last episode, we mentioned that Sid Barrett's been gone for a while. Sid Barrett's been gone for a number of years and an even greater number of albums. Um, why anyone feels the need to invoke the ghost of Sid Barrett beyond the fact that this, um, when you get to um, Brain Damage and Eclipse, that this starts to sort of become the lyrical, lyrical fixation on Sid Barrett. But musically, I will still maintain that there is not a lot here. You know, there weren't breaking away. It already moved away musically from Sid. That's that's my my <laughs> hill that I will die on. Get over um, it, everybody. It just it just annoyed me. But there were there were there were two quotes and compare and contrast amongst yourselves. I quote Roger Waters. Dark Side was an expression of political, philosophical, humanitarian empathy that was desperate to get out. Humanitarian empathy. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think they were self-empathetic. You know, Roger coming to terms with his limits and frustrations. Humanity is a little oh. far-reaching. <laughs> So compare that with I, I accept I'll, I'll take the humanity. I'm OK with that. I, I think it's a bloviated statement that was clearly made after the fact. Yeah, I, I don't think, think I don't think I, I, I don't think, think he walked into the studio with all that in his head. <laughs> um, and David Gilmore and this this was kind of cool because, you know, Gilmore's got a different perspective on life. <laughs> David Gilmore was talking about when they listened to the final mix. And, and I think at some point we're going to have to talk about the mix because that becomes an important facet of all of this as well. But he's talking about when they finally got together and listened to the final mix. And, and I quote him here saying he was thinking, quote, my God, we've really done something fantastic here. So, you know, and, and that's one of the things that I like about David. David's a freaking rock star, man. He appreciates 
when they've put together a stellar piece of music and he he recognizes that for what it is. That's one of the, the things that I respond to about him. So, Oh, yeah. You know, one thing about the Sid Barrett comment that you made, Joe, I, I think I would have made the same comment uh, before we started this palaver journey on Pink Floyd. But I think the one thing that I've come to appreciate about Sid Barrett's relationship with the band, and I'll and I'll compare it with us, right? Uh, you know, Jay hasn't been on an episode of the Palaver since uh, what Moving Pictures, or or maybe it was uh, one of the uh, later Rush albums, and Ooh. and and but you know, we 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 invoke him all the time, and, uh, and you know because he's our friend and we love him, and I think that is what has has really. <laughs> opened my eyes in this is that they love Sid. It's not like, it's not like fish left Merlion and they were got a new singer and they were like, okay, like we just got to get away from that. Cause you know, they, whatever he was out of the band because of the reasons that he was, they remained friends. They all still loved him. And I think that his creative force and his original impetus is still recognized by all the members of the band, even though I totally agree with your point that, Musically, they've completely shed all of their uh, musical evolutions from him or derivatives from him. They're they're all gone. But I still think that the the ballsiness and the and the and the willingness to do something like Pink Floyd it it, it came from his original creative impetus. And I'll just leave it at that. And, and and I totally agree with that. And if that's the way that it was presented, I wouldn't be banging my drum the way I am. So because, yeah, I mean, clearly there was an affection for Sid, but that's not the way it's it's always presented. And, and maybe well, it just it's a simplistic way to present it. Well, I offer one of the vehicles of brotherhood just so happens to be money. So at this point, uh, they had already done the reissues. And what, what was it called? Two of a kind, two of a pair, two a perfect two. A, a the, nice pair. A nice pair. So they were sending checks back to Sid. And, and Sid actually makes his way back to London, is it? I mean, from, you know, Cambridge or wherever it was. Sid was, was present during this period. And the residuals, from what I understand, allowed him to do that. Because he certainly wasn't capable of earning an income at that point on his own. Some of this bond is the company, the corporation. Sure. Yeah, it was definitely a, a personal um, loss, I think more than a musical loss. Uh, ironically, we're going to be having the same conversation next week when we talk yeah. about Wish You Were Here because there's even more of a connection <laughs> with the songs with Sid Barrett. So, Right, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But, I mean, hopefully at that point, you know, everyone – will judge Pink Floyd on the musical merits of the four members that have been in the band. But like I said, that's just, that's my own grumpy old man thing. Uh, another interesting quote that came out sort of in the beginning of this documentary, uh, you know, and again, evaluate it how you will, but Roger speaks to um, metal and, and echoes in particular. And he says, metal was the beginning of writing about other people the beginning of empathy. So while he may not have come into the studio with that 
fully formed idea in his head, at least Roger seems capable of retconning that into, you know, his own arc, if you will. Take yeah. that for, for what it is. Before I really had an in-depth knowledge of Pink Floyd in my younger days, I would have sworn that Dark Side of the Moon came right before the wall, right? And I, I truly thought that, you know, it was like animals, wish you were here, Dark Side of the Moon, and then, and then the wall. And, and I think the reason that I think that was because, you know, you just see this build and build and build and everything that they did up until this group of records, for some reason, I just feel like if, you, you know, cause Tom, you said it, like there's a lot of components in all those other albums that rear their heads here, but the way they put it together is so epic that it, it, it almost, it almost overshoots you know, their own, their own space. It's amazing to me. It's like they always had the puzzle, but now they figured out how to put it together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. They, not, not only did they put it together, they, they uh, shellacked the back of it and stuck it in a frame and, and, <laughs> you know, I mean. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, it's funny, right? Because we've, and I think we've talked about this, certainly through Omegoma and Adam Hart mother, when the, band is, for lack of a better phrase, playing around with some of these techniques and things that they want to do and this this sound design that maybe in some cases goes beyond strictly music, right? They put all those tools in their toolbox. It's like someone printed out a set of instructions on, on Darkseid and they're like, oh shit, this is how we use all this crap. And, and they, they already knew how to do all this. And it's like they applied everything that they had learned perfectly. And, and it starts in the very beginning of, of Speak to Me, right? You get that, that kick drum heartbeat that they have going on. Mm-hmm. Then you, you bring in you know, the, the money sound loop. You've got the, the talking and the, the maniacal laughing. You've got the, the keyboard created helicopter sounds. All of this is building up that pressure, right? But it's it's all of these little things, these these sound designy things that they had been playing around with, but it was never applied with such focus before. And of course, it it all ends up in that wonderful scream, and it resolves into that that first luscious chord, and you're just mm-hmm. like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> It's really interesting how, in general, Pink Floyd sort of goes against some of the paradigms that we've we've talked about in in regards to collaboration. You know, when we were talking about Yes, we would always talk about if certain people would go off and write the album, things might yeah. go south. Yeah. But it, what is interesting about Pink Floyd is that uh, Dark Side and Wish You Were Here are probably their most collaborative albums. And they are extremely successful. But also, um, I mean, Animals is a fantastic album as well. And that's just, it's almost all Roger Waters. And of course, there's The Wall, which is, I mean, what can you say about The Wall? I mean, there's just there's too much to even say in a, in a short period of time. Um, it's, it's a classic. And that oh, was we'll almost try. All, Don't worry. Yeah, we will. Um, but that was almost all, that was almost all Roger Waters. So it doesn't seem like, Pink Floyd has like that set equation that we can, you know, put with some of the other uh, bands that we've talked about. And so I find, 
uh, I find these you know four or five albums in this period uh, extremely interesting in the fact that uh, there's always a different dynamic with the writing and and going back to something you said Joe a little while ago uh, talking about how much of a, a badass Gilmore is I and that he can appreciate uh, uh, a good song David Gilmore to me can can write a, a really good song but he's still always in the pocket with the guitar playing and he he can he knows how to collaborate he's not afraid to just come up with a cool riff and and hand it to Roger Waters he's not he doesn't have that ego uh, I mean I'm sure we all have egos but his that that ego didn't um at least, I mean, who knows? It didn't didn't seem to hurt the band as much, yeah. Um, as as other people, and so when David Gilmore is talking about how he wrote a certain lick, but then you know, Roger Ward, he 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 handed it to Roger Waters to do the lyric. He just wants a good song. He wants a good sounding album, and that's what you yeah. were um, uh, alluding to earlier, Joe. And I think. That made me appreciate David Gilmore even more because he's always there when you need him, but you know he doesn't have to be there all the time. And so that's just just adds to the the yeah I'm gonna say it the, the brilliance of, of of David Gilmore the fact that he can pull back. Yeah, you know Tom, when you're talking, I I, I love what you're saying. The the one documentary that I saw about the um the little sequence pattern in on the run and, and David Gilmore like sets it up and he does it. Yeah. And then he like plays it. He told the story of how he had programmed this, you know, sequence and they were messing around with it. And then, you know, later on they got into the studio and he said something to the effect of it. And Roger was really hell bent on, on changing a couple of the notes and making it, you know, sound this way. And, and, and then he said, and quite annoyingly, as often was the case, it was much better after he did it. Yeah. It was like, that is like the perfect example of what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. He really does provide Roger the credit that I think he deserves when he talks about you know, their time together. When you talk about On the Run specifically, Paul, and, and it's funny in, in these documentaries, you know, those places where like musically David and Roger came very close to each other, to hear them describe that, obviously completely separately, is, you know, you can almost even feel the tension even today, even that far away. But it's it's just funny to watch both of them sort of have to go back and talk about those areas where they came in, in closest contact and, and, you know, how it was maybe uncomfortable. And, and mm. when I went back and watched the, the classic albums documentary again today, I picked up on something that I hadn't picked up on the, the first time I saw it uh, most recently. And that is that apparently by the time we got to the mixing of this album, that's when some of this friction between David and Roger really started to manifest itself to the point where they actually brought in the um, Chris Thomas, the mixing supervisor, because I guess there were some very strong feelings on how the, the album should be mixed. And it, it's funny when David and Roger speak about it, David and Roger speak about David and Roger. 
when Richard Wright speaks about the mixing, he invokes all four. But hmm. I don't know, maybe based on what I think I know, I think that Richard is trying to be polite <laughs> at this point. And, and I suspect that a lot of it has to do um, with this, you know, with these feelings. But, you know, to your point, Tom, yeah, David Gilmore at the same time is is willing to do what needs to be done. And I haven't I haven't evoked the lost art of conversation in a couple of episodes now, so I have to do it here in that when David talks about um, getting ready to write a momentary lapse of reason, he was specifically looking for a lyricist to complement what he does much in the way that he and Roger had different approaches to things. And I believe he describes it as he was more melodic and Roger was an aggressive wordsmith, I think is mm. the is the word he used. He he understood the power of that dichotomy. And, you know, it just I, – I find this whole thing to be fascinating. Yeah, the other – Joe, I'm sorry to interrupt you. The other thing around that podcast was I remember Gilmore saying something I, – I, I guess to the effect that Momentary Lapse of Reason was really more of all of his work that he had done. And he kind of brought everybody in to, you know – make it into a Pink Floyd album where mm -hmm. the division bell was more, everybody got together. They were on that boat. They, they did, they did all the jam sessions and out of all of the jam sessions became the, the basis of the songs and they started writing the songs and, and he reckoned back to, or hearkened back to, that's the way we used to do it. You really, you know, when we, we go back to that concept about the space that they create and all this collaboration, it really, this album feels like it, it feels like, you know, four guys in a room just jamming and coming up with simple stuff that fits well together. And this album, I mean, this album is 10 tracks. It's not long. To me, it's almost like it is the, almost like the quintessential side one, side two. Like I, I, I honestly don't even know the names of the tracks on on side two it's money us and them that's and that's pretty much the record it just it flows so well together it just has that feel of spontaneity to it throughout it's maddening and and, and that's another thing that kind of comes out in these documentaries the band themselves all four of them you know I, i've seen them make comments that they were writing these songs and they were recording this album at least up until the mixing part they were of a single mind they were in sync they were in unison it very clearly shows i'm glad you brought up the boat paul because dave gilmore's houseboat studio uh, astoria <laughs> has become somewhat of a fixation for me here recently well, why not i saw an interview a few weeks ago where specifically david was talking about sid barrett but the reason I, I point that out is it was very clearly on the Astoria, and but it was like in the middle of the day. So it was this very bright room and you could really see what was going on and the way it's laid out. And you can kind of get a feel for it, right? When you listen to The Lost Art of Conversation, the Astoria becomes very important in A Momentary Lapse of Reason, The Division Bell, and um, I guess maybe not so much for Endless River. But I'm pretty sure that all of the Gilmore interviews occur on the Astoria. 
I think that's where David talks to people. In the sessions where David's at the mixing board, I, I suspect that it's on the Astoria. The interviews in this particular documentary, either they've got the blinds drawn or it's it's in the evening because it's not nearly as as bright. Every time David Gilmore's on the screen, I'm I'm looking at his background trying to see, well, I think that's like the walls on the boat. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's just, I'm fascinated by it. And while we're talking about David Gilmore being a just complete and utter rock god, it is phenomenal watching David Gilmore in this classic albums documentary just go into one of his shredding solos from Dark Side of the Moon dressed like a grandpa. It's just, <laughs> it is the most amazing thing I have ever seen. It's not like... You know, in, in the in the concert from 2008 um, in Gdansk, he at least, you know, he was wearing a T-shirt, right? In this particular documentary instead of interviews, he's got on some sort of like button-down shirt with this little sweater on top, you know, and he's got these slacks. And he just, you know, he looks like a grandpa, but he's awesome. just shredding your face off. It's amazing. Hmm. <laughs> so I've got a question. With regards to to speak to me, I don't necessarily want to belabor the conceptual point, but clearly speak to me in the beginning of that is is meant to evoke some sort of a mm. of a birth type scenario. So the question that I have for the palaver here is, do we think that the intro to speak to me in any way, shape or form influenced living with a big lie from Marillion's Brave? Ooh. Oh my god. I think yes. It's not a, it's not like a one to one. It very clearly sort of creates that mm. image from the beginning, right? The it takes you to the very beginning of 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 life, delivery. And everything that that happens to you after you leave the safety of the womb. I, I wonder how much of this was influencing in terms of them starting well they didn't start the story they started it on the bridge but you get my point i feel like it's an interesting comparison joe because i think it it certainly reflects the same starting point type of thing you know birth i actually think it's got more in common with the overture of 2112 than it does speak to me but i hear what you're saying so when when you look at when you look at the the lyrics for breathe and uh, you know, let's just yeah. explore this a little bit. Um, breathe, breathe in the air. Don't be afraid to care. Leave, but don't leave me. I absolutely love that line, by the way. That just, that line blows me out of the water. Mm -hmm. yeah. Look around and choose your own ground. For long you live and high you fly and smiles you'll give and tears you'll cry. And all you touch and all you see is all your life will ever be. So he's he's providing this greater context. Now, I think living with the big lie goes into much greater detail about all of those different things, but it it, it does sort of, again, in, in my, and I'm just, I'm asking the question. I, I came ac across this literally just today and I'm like, hmm, that's kind of fun. So I don't know. Yeah. I'll buy it. Is it actionable, Joe? <laughs> I do not think it is actionable. Absolutely not. It is a um, very interesting parallel that I would have never considered before this moment. So thank you. The other thing I'd like to point out with regards to uh, these two tracks is the, you know, here, when we talked about this last episode a little bit, the, the Gilmore Wright harmonics are just 
delightful. Mm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's funny, even Roger in the interviews speaks to the influence of their voices and how they mix on this album. And I, I've been sort of paying attention and, and there are the way they use the, the vocals in here from a production point of view and, and an arrangement is off the charts. Wonderful. Mm. The other thing, and Ken's about ready to play, but the other thing <laughs> that has nothing to do with anything that I would like to point out again when the, when they're doing the interviews on this song, Gilmore is sitting there. He he does most of of the interviews and and the song that he plays on his black Telecaster, and I, I believe the right word is patina. The patina on the neck and headstock of his black Tele is delightful. It is just this beautifully you know dark rich tone that one can only assume arises from many years in long use. Hmm. I love it. Wow. That's beautiful. Um, uh, breathe, breathe in the air. Don't be afraid to care. Paul, I'm sorry I played over you earlier, but you know, it's amazing. I waited 80 episodes to play over you because we grew up just constantly playing over each other. So, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, the jazz chords belonged to Richard Wright. If if yeah. I think of I think of chords as rental properties, real estate, sometimes entire farms where a band will stake its claim on this mountain and this real estate is mine. And th- th- this particular band plays with this mode and this sound. And the jazz was uh, just Richard. Now it seems like they've all congealed. They, they, they can agree on this Dorian mode, which is the slightly happier minor key. It, it's, it's a very bluesy thing. And this chord, this E minor 9, is just gorgeous. And so peaceful. And you can just strum that, and it fills a couple of measures without even doing anything. It's like, oh, let me resonate in this chord, you know? <laughs> It's a little a little jazz cocoon for me. I like this. What's where is this going to go? And it goes into that A, that A seven. Mm. So you know you know you think of like 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 a blues going from a one chord, a minor one to a five, and the five is just a little happier in, in this mode. It's it's the Dorian mode. We love it. Don't be afraid to care. It's just really, really beautiful. And then, and then, ah, oh, when they hit the C, yeah. long you live, high you fly, smiles you give, tears you cry. Pure genius, right here. All you touch and all you see in life will be. It's amazing. So, yeah. Gilmore chauffeured Jimi Hendrix around, and this is the first time we're blatantly aware that Gilmore is throwing in the Jimi Hendrix chord. (laughs) (laughs) He waited a long time, but he doesn't doesn't do it straight up. I mean, it's debatable if, you know, this is a guitar player's chord. It's just so comfortable. It's just so luscious. Ty Tabor does it now. You know, everybody has their version of the Jimi Hendrix chord. But right here, 
it, it it's not just a chord it's a progression from yeah. the, the sharp nine to a flat nine oh my god that's pure genius right it, that's the thing ken is that you know the Jimi hendrix chord you know most guitarists would just like grab onto it and they don't want to let it go for as long as they can right they just bang the shit out of it we're basically using it as a transitional uh chord here it is mm -hmm. so awesome thank you for agreeing yeah it's it it's just really really warm and cozy the fact that it has three verses that's kind of the charm of the 70s you're you were allowed to have three verses and they were all allowed to be long you needed that so home home again i like to be here when i can that's just amazing because i i feel like long form songs start to become annoying and everybody truncates their third verse but this is you know pure long form beauty here so they, they either truncate the third verse or they repeat the first verse lyrically and they say the same thing they did in the first verse in the first right. verse tom i want to go back to the top of the uh, top of the show when you were talking about you know the the huge sales numbers and and how this vaulted pink floyd into this stratospheric reputation and everything else these songs are extraordinarily musical but they're not constructed in the verse chorus verse chorus bridge verse chorus formula right they don't do it that way and i just i find that to be fascinating that you know structurally there's there are some inconsistencies you wouldn't necessarily expect this to be the huge hit that it is so i just think that's funny absolutely i mean we've talked a lot about this during the rush segment and even in in king's x we would talk about how a certain band would be in the the, the prog category but you know the the songs would only be like like three and a half minutes and so it's all about the the context within the song how how deep the lyrics are the, the it could be an interesting chord structure or it could be a combination of a lot of different things and sort of that's what makes it prog as much as the length of the song and i think you could put this in that category joe where this is a concept album but it doesn't really feel like a concept album in certain ways this is just my thought but until we get to money it almost feels like this could be like the same song i mean it doesn't not i'm not saying that it's yeah. monotonous i think it's great but it, it just has a certain feeling to it and you're just going with it and before you know it you're coming up with money and you're like, oh my gosh, what what just happened? Like yeah. this is just, and that's, that's a good thing because when when time flies quicker, that means you're 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 doing something right. So just it's incredible. Whenever I, I bring this up, I always sound like an old fogey talking about the good old days. It just boggles my mind that this can make as much money. It's not even about the money; it makes as much money, but it's just so many people connected. Yeah, with the album. Like don't even talk about money. Just talk about. The amount of people that just connected with the album. And if you're going to sell 45 million records, want? it has to be a whole bunch of different groups of people buying it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and it never, like these concepts never go out of style, right? Like every time I pull this out, I, a year goes by and I pull this out to listen to it and I'm struck in some different way by the lyrics because. A, a year later, they hit me differently because I'm a year older and I've lived something else that I didn't live before. And 
and I and it's I you know I don't know if I shared the first time I ever heard this record. Forgive me if this seems a little bit uh, dramatic, but I was I was driving on a to a ski vacation with my parents and my sister Donna. And we were driving to the airport, and for whatever reason, she had Dark Side of the Moon on cassette. I guess she had convinced my parents to put it in on the ride to the airport, and she was. Yeah, she wouldn't even let me listen to it because she kept talking to me about like every lyric that came up. She would be like, oh, and she would sing it or say it to me. And she was like, this song is this album is incredible. We got to the airport and we got on our plane. And I think I'm in like ninth grade. And I was like, let me let me have that cassette. And I just listened from Philadelphia to New Mexico. I just listened to Dark Side of the Moon over and over again. And freaking blew me away. And it was like, finally, I had understood what all of the fuss was about. Mm. And But there was something a little magical about, you know, my older sister, seven years older than me, sort of saying, hey, it, you know, you need to listen to this because this song is about life and it's going to be with you forever. And, you know, here it is all this time again. And I, I, and I couldn't help. I was playing this record this this week when the boys were with me. And I couldn't help but just keep telling them how an amazing record this was and that they should listen to it. And it's about life and money and time. And and like it's almost like I feel my responsibility to 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 shepherd this over to the next generation. <laughs> because it's so it's so identifiable. Wow. That, that's a that's a that's a great story. That Paul. is a great story. Uh, it's great that you had um your sister to talk about the lyrics with you, um, not just like, you know, some people appreciate things on, on different levels. It sounds like your sister really understood what was going on and she was, the fact that she could take in the lyrics on a certain level and, and share it with you is, 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 is pretty awesome. Total yeah, non sequitur. Cool. I happened to just pull up Facebook quickly and you know how it says, oh, here's a memory for you. Oh, oh wow. look at that. <laughs> look at that. That's awesome. Tom, that hair was incredible. We should we should post that picture uh on the Palaver uh social media sites. We probably should. Yeah, so you know, speak to me and, and breathe. Absolutely wonderful. Tom, I agree with you hundred percent. You know, and, and I think the 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 reprise of breathe at the end of time really lends that. But you're right; it's amazing how much time <laughs> elapses, and you're just like, wait, what? You know, I'm I'm mm -hmm. through the first mm -hmm. side of the album, and, and even you know when we move on to on the run, right? So here again, we've got we've got more you know Pink Floyd sound design, but again, it's done in a way that is engaging to me um, personally, and you know, I, I don't know how on earth this song lasts for four minutes. I, I couldn't tell you how this goes on for four minutes. But I will say, when I was listening to it critically over the last week or so for this, every time this song started, and did anyone else have the experience of in their head they hear Dr. Blair, Dr. Blair, Dr. J. Hamilton? <laughs> 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 it just it seemed like it it should be there I, I don't now i think i think that may have inspired the beginning of operation mind crime right that i would i would <laughs> i would go with you for sure there must have been something there that that you know 
because I literally I couldn't stop thinking that every time I heard it. Wow! I was like, oh, that's really something. So that might be actionable. <laughs> you know, not well, that Jeff well, Tate needs I mean, any more legal troubles, but I was I was going to say in in more ways than one. I don't know if you were talking about lyric similarities or uh, music similarities, but I always thought that section of Operation Mindcrime sounded like Floyd. But <laughs> to put it nicely, they, they paid um, homage to, to Pink Floyd there. I think so. Um, I, I think yeah, so. I mean, I always thought that. Mind crime. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you're not going to get that on just any old podcast. I just want to say that's that's for darn tootin' sure. Well, I mean, I, 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 that's a perfect uh, F-sharp minor. Because taking away the moments <laughs> that make up a dull day, you fritter waste the hours off anyway. It's just a straight-up minor song, and I absolutely love it. But then they get back to that jazz. Oh, yeah. Gorgeous. I'll tell you. Yeah, it's it's uh, for me, you just you just played it, Ken. It's that it's just a straight up minor progression. And then they they just come in with all of those major seven chords that are just so so beautiful. Ah. Oh. <laughs> there's just there's so much about this record that just melts my brain. The the song time is somehow seven minutes long. How the <laughs> fuck is this song seven minutes? It seems like it lasts about three and a half. It is phenomenal. The sort of time well, machine I they do, put us Well, in. the intro is three minutes. Well, yeah, the, the intro is pretty long. And, and, and the intro is yeah. great, right? So let's give let's give credit. Rototoms. When did we invoke Rototoms in the Rush segment? It wasn't until like the mid 80s or something, right? that we, we stumbled I, I, across the rototoms. I do have a bug up my ass about this whole rototom thing because it turns out they were just left in the studio by some other band. Now, you've got someone like <laughs> Neil Peart who will like physically bike to China to buy a China boy and do all his work himself. And Nick Mason just goes, oh, I'll use whatever on the studio wall over here and it will sound amazing. Look, listen, there, there's there's a lot to be said for being lucky rather than being good. Right. But yeah. that was part of his deal. Like he he was the, the experimenter of sounds. And I think he was just tooling around the studio and he was like, sweet, you've got rototoms. Let me fuck around with these for a while. Uh, listen, if there's anything that this Pink Floyd segment has done for me, similar to the way it really brought Bill Bruford forward in my mind in the Yes segment. It has illuminated the, the sheer brilliance of Nick Mason in my mind. I fucking love that guy. And, and I think he's fucking genius all over this album. Thank you. So Thank you. So, but again, I just want to make the point. Rototoms in 1973. It, it, these guys are leading the way in in so many different facets. It's amazing. Well, I was just going to say like, and how many of the albums that we talked about before has anyone said, Hey, I know let's, let's bring a bunch of people in the studio and give them and give them prompt cards and ask them to just answer the questions on cards and then somehow yeah. use that in the record. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Right. Roger explains that. And the, the reason the cards came about was because he wanted 
similar responses or responses in a similar vein rather than just let people talk extemporaneously. And so that's where the cards came from. Mm. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's the application of all of this stuff. And how do you get, how do you get people talking in a way that's useful and drives, excuse me, drives what you're trying to do. You prompt them. You prompt everyone with the same prompt to get them to speak in the same vein, but yet different. It's brilliant. But what genius stuff too. When was the last time you were in an argument? Yeah. And were you in the right? I mean, oh, fuck. That's awesome. It it really, I mean, (laughs) and and the payoff is great. Now, when you talk about time in the three-minute intro, I I absolutely love the way that that sort of – it gives you that space we've talked about, but it yet it builds the tension that you're looking for that, you know, again, the, the, the push and pull that they're able to create musically on this record is phenomenal. And we'll get to that. Um, I, I think it's probably best expressed for me personally in us and them. I did have a question for you, Joe, in your research, did you figure out what the metronomic drums are i um, didn't i was wondering about that i was i w- when i was going through my final listen today that very question occurred to me and i'm like what the f- is that and and i that's the one thing i don't know didn't they use it on uh i'm scared by clouds it's either the first or second song has like a metronomic something going on there. It comes from. Yeah, it's killing me. Yeah, I think I think Phil Collins stole it for Duke. We know that he slowed it down. We know that. Yeah. And 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 Roger talks. He was he was talking about he was he was listening to to Dark Side for various reasons. And again, this was back in two thousand three, I believe. But he talks about listening to that and and he's like, you know, oh, I'm listening to it. And I I thought, oh, you know, oh, well, now it's going to get into this. Oh, no, we do it another time. Oh, well, now it's going to – no, we do it an, again. And, and he, he described it as going on an interminably long time. Um, but, I mean, that's the beauty of it, right? It, it does go on for the length of a song, but it's just – it's brilliant. And then when this, the, the quote-unquote song – actually starts and it's interesting because here you've got david gilmore who in my mind i like to think of as this soothing melodic vocalist but he's got these very aggressive vocals so you get this sort of you know upfront in your face aspect to david that you don't normally get and then they use richard as the contrast here and and we talked a little bit last episode about how going forward this vocal contrast is going to really come to be david and and roger but here they use richard as as sort of the counterpoint to to david being the aggressive one which is a little unusual it still works but it's yeah. it's very cool yeah. The the other thing that that struck me about this when you when you talk about the chorus, right? So you've got David with these aggressive um, vocals on the verses. In the chorus, it starts out the first two lines are Richard, and then for the last two lines, it's Richard and David together. And in the first chorus, the 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 backing vocals they're they're almost buried with the organ. 
it, it's like they're mirroring the organ and you, you really have to work to pick them out. Um, and when you when you watch this and you talk when you hear Alan Parsons talk about all the effects that they put on the, uh, the the backing vocals, you can understand why it's maybe hard to pick that out. But the second time they go into the chorus, you still have the same right and then right Gilmore um, Porsche or um, arrangement. But but now in the second time when Gilmore comes in, they also the backing vocals also come in. They're much more prevalent. And then you get that sort of lead scatty sort of part um, as well. And, and it just the the way that they sort of built that from the first time you hear that chorus to the second time, I think it, it again, it's just it's brilliant production. Nice. Did we uh, did I miss it in the last several Pink Floyd albums that we listened to the um, the background chorus of female singers like we we haven't had that before have we i don't think we have and and if i i'm just thinking about it now like like thinking about the songs coming up in wish you were here they're they're not really there in those albums either right yeah am i right about that i think you're right and and what's what's amazing is like if you would ask me like okay what's the pink floyd sound i would be like oh you got to have three chicks singing back up right <laughs> Because we're so used to seeing that on the live show, right? Oh, I figured it out. Uh, there is a wailing choir, an entire choir in a Pink Floyd song. In an earlier one, right? Adam Hart Mother. Oh. Yes. So yes. there is the chorus. There is the chorus. Yeah, that, so I don't that, know if that's, I, a, that's a chorus. It's a little that's different. Not, yeah, I feel like it's a little different. not exactly the same I don't same think thing. it's the same application. Did you guys, in, in your... In your research for this, did you come across the Roger Waters demo of this song? I just, I just, uh, of time? Yes. No. No. We spent what seemed to be hours talking about the impact of the group on Owner of a Lonely Heart versus the demo of that song. I think time benefits in much the same way real <laughs> yeah the demo that roger because apparently roger demoed a lot of these in his his garden studio it, it's almost like if you if you saw a, a framed out house but it was just the studs everywhere and nothing else <laughs> and you're like yeah that's that's a house sure <laughs> you can't live in it you, you know there's nothing there but um yeah that's about what it is is tom going to come back where's tom I miss Tom. His, his picture looks a little freaky. A little <laughs> I like scary. It. I like it. I like it. It, it does look a little scary. <laughs> With the beard and the hat, I, I don't even want to say what what he look what what I, he reminds me of right now. Um, is this a uh, so I I can't really tell if we're going through this song by song right now or we're, if we're, um, we're slowly doing that. Um, so I, I think it's I think you can't talk really about um, about the song time without spending a little bit of time talking about the electric feel that is unleashed after the line "You miss the starting gun." Oh and, yeah, and, and David Gilmore goes into his guitar solo. Mucho's mm. back. Mucho. I was telling this great story. I, I, I had been offline for like five minutes. Tell us again, Tom. <laughs> so, um, you know what a badass Claire Torre is. I don't know if I pronounced her, her last yeah. name properly. 
But, Absolutely. Um, you had just said something, Joe, about the three singers on stage. So the story goes, after they figured out, she's in the studio, and after they figured out that they didn't want her to sing any lyrics or anything, and they sort of honed in on, on what they thought they wanted, she ended up doing it in one take, right? Right. But that's not the crazy thing. I mean, that's impressive. But the, the crazy thing is that they like no one singer could actually sing that live. So they actually, that's why they had three singers and they actually <laughs> had to segment off each singer to do a third when every time they, they, they did that song. So yeah, she's a amazing singer and um, that's why they have the three singers there. I thought they edited, I thought they did Claire Torrey's vocal the way they did Gilmore solos where, where they would do three takes and they would edit all the takes together. I, I, so if if we're if we're skipping ahead to Great Gig in the Sky and Paul will come back to the uh, the time solo here in just a second, if we're skipping ahead to Great Gig in the Sky, I have not come across that. What I've heard in regards to that was they had they had found Claire. I guess Claire was somehow associated with Abbey Road Studios, and I guess Alan had worked with her before, and Alan said we should try her and they sent her into the booth and, and they didn't give her any lyrics, but they said, you know, think about war and death and sadness and all this stuff. She sang it and she came out of the booth apologizing for doing such a terrible job. And they're all like, this is great. Now it doesn't say how many takes she did or anything like that, but you know, it, I, I don't know. The documentary I, I saw it, she was telling the story and I got the impression that it was one take in the sense that like she had done some other things. She started singing like, Hey baby, like at one point and they're like, no, we don't want any lyrics. So, you know, she didn't do it like from scratch. Right. There, like, mm -hmm. Once they got to the point where they knew what they wanted and they were like, okay, just go with this. She did it. She nailed it. Oh, and you know, is what we hear. And I, apparently it's, pretty difficult for a one singer to sing the whole thing, especially live. So I don't know. I just thought she was badass. I just adore what Gilmore has done. He's getting three, sometimes four or more different voices on there and they all seem to get their own shot at it. So, so I, I, I love what I've heard out there. The only drawback about that vocal in the song is it, it completely overshadows the the genius of Nick Mason and behind the kit during that during that section, um, he's like he's like the Ringo star of Pink Floyd, and I, I think his stylistically he's very he's very similar to to Ringo. It's just that I I don't think it's as obvious. At least it wasn't to me because of just the I, I'm just gonna say this more of the bluesy slash jazzy nature of. Pink Floyd compared with the whatever the Beatles were, they were everything, right? But they're more pop tendencies, if you will. But I just think what he is doing, you know, during her uh, singing is magical. He's playing all these terrific fills. He's he's swinging the whole thing. It just fits so well. And the genius is right. It just at the very beginning hits that he has. Right. It's it's you think about think about all the big drum fills that start big passages of songs or take you from one place to another. It, it, he just goes. 
and then and they're off to the races. And it, it's there's just a little bit of swing in uh, in those two hits, like just it's just a little. It's like that feature on the drum machine when you dial in. Eh, I'm gonna put like a certain percentage of swing into the to to try, try to make it more real life. Oh, it's so it's so great. And like when when I'm sitting there and I was trying, I was figuring out the course of Great Gig of the Sky, and I got there and I'm playing along, and I just like that's when it just hits me. Like just his the simple two snare hits to go into that mm. takes me to another place. It's fucking awesome. Nice. The other aspects, I think, of Great Gig in the Sky that, that really stuck out to me were just the beautiful piano playing that Richard brings to that and how evocative that piano actually is. And again, we'll see more of this in, in Us and Them. And and the other thing that you just kind of struck me from a, a fun point of view is um, is is we have we have David Gilmore with pulling out the lap steel, which, you know, is always fun. Oh, heavens. I think that lap steel work, it legitimizes something in the music, like harmonically. Because if Rick were just doing this alone, there might be that, that jazzy feeling of Rick doing his own thing. But really, Dave has learned how to jump in there and have a voice on, t- on top of Rick. It's really beautiful. Oh, God. Yeah. The lap steel. Just just when he first slides up into it, you know it. he's in the pocket. Yeah. And, you know, and, and yeah. I think we've sort of alluded to this. You know, we, we had made the comment that, you know, Pink Floyd were this sort of psychedelic outfit. David Gilmore came along who was much more of a of a blues guy. And I think they've been trying to, and, and Richard Wright is is a jazz enthusiast, and I think they've been trying to figure out how to fit the pieces together. And I think here they, you know, Tom, to your your metaphor, they they figured it all out, and, and it all kind of comes together here. Yeah. The beauty of that piano, there is something just soothing about, you know, if you're playing like a minor seven chord and you suspend, well, actually, the minor seven, right? The seventh in the in the G minor seven is, you know, turns out to be the suspended fourth of a C seven. So when you go from G minor seven to C seven, you're getting that natural. If you you're you're getting the natural F to E, and it's so wonderful. And then when and then when he goes from there to F major seven, it's just like oh my gosh. It's just like the the it's wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's so soothing. And you know, great gig in the sky. This is kind of like, you know, I was this is kind of like death, right? You know, you go through yeah. all this shit and uh, you know, times come up behind you and you know, you're shorter a breath and all that stuff and and uh, what a soothing soothing sort of uh vocal bed. To, to comment on the passage of, of a life. Mm, yeah. Paul, you were you were about to tell us something spectacular about the guitar solo in time. Well, it's it's definitely one of the more classic solos, but I think the thing that is, it, and I'll keep it short, the thing that's always amazing about David Gilmore is that when you listen to his solos, especially, at least, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't make sweeping generalizations, 
as a young guitarist, I would always hear David Gilmour and I would be like, oh, yes, finally, some guitar player that I could play because, you know, he doesn't play wicked fast. And, you know, and, you know, you listen to the solo in in time and it is epic. It's got a phenomenal tone and it sounds like you listen to it. And you're like, yeah, that sounds pretty easy. But when you like put your headphones on, and pick up your guitar and you start trying to figure out what he's doing, you're just like, holy fuck. <laughs> This, mother, this motherfucker is just ridiculous, you know, and it, you can say that about so much of what he does and so many of his solos, you know, I mean, shit, how many times have you gone to a bar and heard a band do a Pink Floyd cover, right? But like, he is one of those guys that, you know, when he bends a note, you know that it's David Gilmore. And man, the, the time solo, it, you can hum the whole thing all the way through fuck if you can play it like anywhere close to him it's just incredible that's all i wanted to say i i love watching this documentary because david spends a lot of time playing you know by himself sort of along with music or demonstrating um you know what was going on and, and even just the, the concert i was watching but but watching him and maybe this is a dumb statement but it seems to me that a lot of guitarists are either benders or whammy bars and David flips back and forth. He doesn't care. He, he uses mm. whatever technique is appropriate at the time. And I just think that's cool. Mm -hmm. I, I maybe have a man crush on David Gilmore. I'm not, I'm not really <laughs> certain. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys brought up earlier some similarities, uh, if there were similarities between Brave and this, but I, I was hearing you talk now, Rothery, has that same thing when he bends a note. Yeah. No, it's him. I'm sure he was influenced by, by Gilmore, but he was influenced by, by Gilmore, maybe in that sense of just that, that tonality and what you can get out of a bent note. So, so Paul, yeah. uh, there's another list that I think you need to keep. Now we oh. have the progressive palaver pantheon of guitar note benders. <laughs> <laughs> So it's and that's great alliteration too. I love it. <laughs> so we have we have David Gilmore. Well, we have Stephen Rothery, and we have Guthrie Govit. Our our our, there you our go. three. I, I love it. <laughs> you don't hear it as much now, but after starting with the wish you were here, you start to get the classic David Gilmore. I think it's a combination of whammy and bends, where it's like the. Woo, woo, woo. Ben, that he, that he does a lot. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. And, and then, of course, you know, time resolves itself back into the Breathe reprise, which is just, you know, Tom, and you had, you had mentioned this. We've already talked about it a couple different times. You're just like, wait, how did I get back here? This is this is awesome. I love it. It's gorgeous. And, and, and <laughs> you know, it the, the vocal treatment here very much contrasts with, the the aggressive vocals of David that I had spoken to in the first part of this song. So you you know here again you get this sort of this dynamic going on this this musical texture within the space of the of the same song that I just think is is wonderful. Another aspect to this and and this is just one of my own little weird foibles. I am fascinated, utterly fascinated with the with the lyrics here in this short reprise of Breathe, specifically the, the very end of it, the tolling of the iron bell, 
calls mm. the faithful to their knees to hear the softly spoken magic spells. Now, there's mm -hmm. there's a lot for me personally, um, you know, uh, that we don't need to go into here with regards to that. But you wouldn't have thought this at the time. But here we are in 2020 and listening to the entire catalog of Pink Floyd that I have, when I hear um, the tolling of the Iron Bell, I immediately, immediately hear the, the bell in high hopes. When, mm. when I hear David Gilmore sing the tolling of the Iron Bell, that's what jumps into my head. I can't stop it at this point. Um, mm. I find that interesting. The other thing that, that really gets me about this is this, to hear the softly spoken magic spells. We don't need to go into any thoughts about you know religion because that's clearly what we're talking about here, church services and things like that. I do have some, some of my own thoughts about you know, the power of, of ritual and, and where that, that power comes from or resides. And that makes me think of this, but I've actually invoked this before. I believe it was on a saucer full of secrets and I don't remember the exact track, but there was, there was a track on there that I, I believe I made the comment that the vocal line sounded ritualistic. And so it, for me, in these three lines of music, for me personally, it points to the far ends of, of the Floyd catalog. And that's not something that you would have gotten in 1973. But for me personally, in today's world, I love that. And I think it's fantastic. Love it. I love that you bring up that line because it's so powerful because of, you know, as you're going through and, and you know, following along, and, you know, with the plight of man, if you will. You know, the last lines before this were, you know, hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. Yeah. Um, oh. Right. And, and you're talking about how life is getting shorter and you never get to do the things that you want to do. And and you're just kind of plodding along in quiet desperation. You come home and, you know, you, you relax and you rest. And it's a, it's this brief pause. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm just going to share my, my feelings about this is that, you know, the ritual of going to church every every week it was a wonderful thing when i was growing up and it was always like a, a new beginning of every week right and it, it there was that ritual that really held the fabric of a lot of things together in my uh my early life there are times to this day where i miss that uh that presence but i love how it's referenced here because where you are in the album it's like saying okay the tolling of the iron bell calls the faithful to their knees it's like we're doing this ritual. We are, you know, we're getting ready to start all over again. And I think it also speaks to the greater ritual that this record talks about, which is the experience of life, right? You know, my my need to share this with my children because they are now at the age that I'm like, they need to know about this stuff, right? Yeah. And it's just this perpetuating ritual of life and the perpetual constant of all of us being parts of the machine and cogs in the wheel, if you will. And I just think that this one, it's amazing when one line can evoke so much of like, wow, this is like the whole album in three lines. So we had floated the idea of, of actually doing two episodes on Dark Side of the Moon. I feel bad that Tom's children may have to eat black bean soup again. <laughs> 
next next week. Oh, uh, uh, while this virus thing has happened, they're going to eat black bean soup until we finish the Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good place for maybe us to to take a breather right now and collect our collective breaths, and we can come back next week and we will finish out then side two with all of the uh, all of the baggage that goes with that as well because i think there are there are even more themes to explore next week so if you guys are okay with that i will thank you very much for spending this quality time here this evening discussing uh our general overview and the first part of dark side of the moon and next week we will finish up dark side of the moon so thank you gentlemen We hope you've enjoyed this first part of our discussion on Dark Side of the Moon. We have, as always, have enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we welcome your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is ProgPala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or presumably wherever you do find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. So I was on a meeting on Thursday and I just, I couldn't put it down. And I was like, just noodling ever so softly, even though I was on a call. And like, right at the end of the call, one of the people said, do I hear a guitar? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, busted. Yeah. Yeah.